I am genuinely confused when it comes to Horizon Forbidden West. On the one hand, it does a lot of things really remarkably well. On the other hand, I find parts of it so bloated and boring it's almost infuriating. For example, the game is graphically stunning. The art direction is top-notch as we've come to expect from Guerrilla Games over the last few years, and the creature design is both complex and graceful, not to mention that there are literally dozens upon dozens of hours of content here. But even with all of that, there are bizarre shortcomings, such as the pacing, with the game taking roughly 10 hours to open the world such that you can leave the starting area from the end of the first game, or the extreme overabundance of bloat and filler in the gameplay systems, specifically around the crafting, upgrading, and collectibles mechanics. It's all filled with busy work that wasn't necessary, requiring so many random ingredients and fetch quests that it often feels like you're making some obscure lasagna needing to to hunt down all sorts of cheeses and herbs that you've never heard of. Which is incredibly frustrating because, bear in mind, this is a video game. It's supposed to be fun and not mind-bogglingly tedious. I think the game exemplifies one of the pitfalls that sequels can fall into very easily. The developers feel like they have to take everything up a notch, and sometimes they forget that they should trim some of the fat from the original as well. If you look at the original Assassin's Creed, for example, going into probably the best Assassin's Creed ever made, Assassin's Creed 2, you can see just how much content was added and how fundamentally the gameplay loop was changed. The developers really went back to the drawing board to focus on what worked and to cut out the things that didn't. But in this sequel to Horizon Zero Dawn, it's like the developers completely ignored the latter step. Instead of looking for things that the first game didn't do well that could be removed in favor of a tighter focus on fan favorite features, they just pretended as though their farts smelled like roses and they failed to rework the formula into to something really fresh and exciting, or, at the very least, to focus on the most lean and enjoyable systems while shedding the busiest and most egregiously uninteresting. And this is really the best way I can describe Horizon Forbidden West, and that is that it feels like a fantastically large expansion to the first game. And that's about it. It doesn't feel like its own standalone title that does a lot differently or uniquely. There is very little here that truly feels like it deserved a sequel to house it. There are certainly new features and tools, don't misunderstand me. I've played the game and I put a lot of time into it in the process, but even after all that, I'm not impressed by these additions. The most notable additions are the glider, the free climbing, the grappling hook, and the rebreather. Regarding the glider, it really doesn't glide you anywhere, so the term crappy parachute is probably more accurate. Instead of gliding, you just slowly fall. And it sounds like uh, an unnecessary clarification, but it's it feels very, very different and not particularly good. Like, I wouldn't say it's as bad as the glider in Dying Light 2, but it's pretty close. And furthermore, this doesn't fundamentally transform navigation in any sort of meaningful way. Sure, you can jump from a tall height now without fear of dying from fall damage every single time, but that's really it. There are very few occasions when I would actually feel as though this thing was adding to the quality of exploration. We now also have a reworked climbing system with Aloy now capable of traversing up stiff rock faces and other 
other such steep terrain. But my frustration with the first game was that you were limited to climbing only things that the developers wanted you to climb at specific moments. It really made the whole thing feel as though you could only explore within predetermined, extremely strict guidelines. And it's still the case here. You see, all throughout the game, Aloy will find these puzzles that include some various puzzle solving and then free climbing systems using your grapple hook to pull objects down and rearrange them. It's pretty mundane, but these are items and ruins that Aloy should be fully capable of climbing up freely without issue, but instead you're just not allowed to. She's able to climb up cliff faces with little to no problem, but God forbid she tries to climb up an old dilapidated house. I get it, if she could climb up the outside of this wall to get straight into the reward room, it would kind of defeat the purpose of the entire puzzle, but I would argue that they could actually give the player the freedom to explore however they wanted to, and that you could do that while still having quality puzzles, but that they would have to be designed in a way that accounts for the newfound freedom of exploration. Look at Breath of the Wild. All of those Koroks seeds are the perfect example of how you can implement small puzzles with rewards while maintaining the quality and freedom of exploration that Breath of the Wild is so loved for. I will freely grant that I am perhaps overly sensitive to dissonant gameplay and narrative designs, but I really think that this is a fair frustration to have. There is no reason why Aloy shouldn't be able to climb up this wall and in through this window to the artifact that serves as this ruin's reward. The only reason the player isn't allowed to is because the gameplay designers don't want you to do it because it would spoil all of the work that they did in designing this puzzle. But this is what I mean when I say that all of the new gameplay implementations fall flat for me. There is new stuff, but so much of it is ignored when convenient in favor of other gameplay designs which are frustratingly lame or just copy and pasted from the previous game. Totally open free climbing is a great gameplay mechanic. Let the player use that mechanic to solve a puzzle built around that mechanic instead of giving players access to that newfound freedom and then revoking it when convenient to implement a puzzle. And before anybody says, oh, he brought up Breath of the Wild, but when you go into the shrines, you can't free climb up the walls or around puzzles that way. You're absolutely correct. And that was a frustration I had with that game back in the day as well. But the Korok seeds all being present within the world itself didn't fall victim to this shortcoming because they were in the game map. So you didn't have any sort of special treatment, no arbitrary rules or withholding of abilities. You could use whatever tools at your disposal to accomplish your goal of acquiring that Korok seed. And it was great. I don't know, maybe you have a really tough parkour section, like you have to carefully time jumps, gauge distances properly, etc., and do all of that instead of turning off this new gameplay system you added for the sequel just so you could design a puzzle like you did in the first game. I really can't emphasize this enough. Whenever Horizon Forbidden West introduces a new gameplay mechanic or system that could fundamentally shake up, improve, or otherwise alter the experience of any one of its countless combats, systems, exploration systems, the narrative, it would focus on it for about half an hour to an hour and then lose focus on that particular mechanic and forget about it for hours at a time. And then you would be right back to doing quests, solving puzzles, and participating inside activities that feel no different than the first game. It's like they were working on all of these systems throughout development and only got them working in the last year or so of development, but they couldn't just sit around and not have quests designed in the meantime. So all of the quest designers had to work with 
what they had, which in many cases were just the basic movesets and tools from the first game. So even though the player ends up getting these cool new abilities and tools, they aren't actually used comprehensively or cohesively throughout the entire game. Going back to Breath of the Wild, it's one of the reasons that all of the Korok Sades and puzzles throughout the game were so coherent and cohesive together. It's because when you leave the Great Plateau, all of the players who leave it will have the glider, the four main abilities, they'll have the ability to climb up structures, they'll have a certain amount of stamina that they can gauge off of, and they can build puzzles with the understanding that players will have those items and capabilities. It's like in Breath of the Wild, the designers didn't anticipate players doing these things in a linear fashion. They anticipated most puzzles being solved perhaps a lot up front and then a bunch at the back end during the end game when players are trying to finish up collectibles or somewhere in between because they never actually implement all of the abilities that Aloy has to offer, especially by the end of the game. And a lot of the abilities she has at the end of the game should totally break all of these puzzles, but the way the designers get around it is just by turning off that ability for that puzzle which is just stupid. Seriously, if you had any immersion in the game whatsoever, by the time you reach these puzzles, they're just gonna tear you straight out of it. And there's a lot more to discuss, which we're gonna get to over the course of this video, but this is just a taste of my frustrations with the game. When the original Horizon game launched in 2017, I was also frustrated because I felt as though it laid a remarkable foundation for something to come later. They had a lot of great systems at play, but there was very little that truly felt fully fleshed out. No doubt it's really hard to do that. To have a gameplay system that's robust and that you exhaust by the end of the game's runtime is tough, but I would argue that regardless of the difficulty of accomplishing that, it is literally the job of these development studios. Like, I get it, making a sequel to a game like Horizon Zero Dawn I'm sure is very difficult, but that's literally why we're paying you 60 bucks per copy of the game, or I guess $70 if you're buying the PlayStation 5 version of the game, which is a lot of money. Over the course of this video, I want to deep dive into each of these frustrations that I've had. I want to discuss the entire game and try to put my thoughts into some sort of coherent structure. I really like a lot of what Horizon Forbidden West does, and parts of it are truly remarkable, but there's also a lot of it that falls flat, feels unfinished, or just simply rushed. I know it's hard to believe that a game that took five years could be rushed, but with the pandemic, working from home, complicating things, and high expectations, I think it becomes pretty easy to see how these types of things can happen. I also think there were a few mistakes made very early on in this game's development with the basic conceptualization of what they wanted to do here that rippled throughout the rest of development, and it effectively is like building a house on a shaky foundation. If those starting ideas are a little off or a little weak, you're going to end up with problems at the end. And lastly, I'm sure it goes without saying, but I'm going to spoil pretty much everything in this video. So if you haven't played the game and want to, stop. <laughs> no, seriously, I will be spoiling pretty much everything. So if you are adverse to spoilers, click off the video, go watch one of my other videos uh, on a different video game that I've critiqued. I will still be here with this video when you're done. Also note, if you want to watch these videos on the go, I know they're long and comprehensive. So if you want to take it on the go like a podcast, these critiques are available on every major podcasting website, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud. You can direct download the MP3 if you want. It's just my way of saying thank you for watching and listening. So check it out. And of course, follow all of my social media. We played this game over on Twitch. So if you want to hang out on Twitch, uh, then come say hi. I would love to, to see you over there. Also, follow all of my social media. I'll have it linked in the link tree in the description box below the like button. And if you want to hang out with me while I play these games that I critique and just 
to hang out in general, come over to my Twitch stream. We are live very regularly, and I would love to see you over there. But with that, let's get into it. I'll meet you over at the desk. Boom, we're here. Hi. NordVPN is the cutting edge VPN provider that's used by creators around the world. I myself have been using NordVPN for years and I cannot recommend them highly enough. They have industry leading connection speeds, a verified no log policy, and with over 5,500 servers worldwide, NordVPN lets you stay safe online without slowing down at all. And the cherry on top of all of this is that with one account you can secure up to six devices, meaning you can protect your phone, tablet, laptop, home PC, and whatever else you need to all on one account without having to pay for multiple subscriptions. And right now they're offering a crazy deal for viewers of this channel. And to make the deal just a little bit sweeter, they'll even throw in an extra month for free. Check them out today at the link in the video description box below or at nordvpn.com forward slash Stevens and make sure to apply coupon code Stevens at checkout to get the discount. Again, nordvpn.com forward slash Stevens. Good to see you. The first thing we have to discuss is how the game begins. It's crucial for any sequel to a well-received title to set the stage and expectations properly. Going into Horizon Forbidden West, I think most of us expected more of the same and hopefully some quality of life improvements. I have to hand it to Sony, they did a really good job of managing expectations on this one though. They didn't overpromise and underdeliver. they simply showed off what the game was going to be like, put forward some flashy cinematics, and let them speak for themselves. That's definitely the way to go with a game like this, especially because the first game was criticized for overpromising on its features, such as the role-playing mechanics in the dialogue systems, which ended up having effectively no impact on the larger story beyond a couple of dialogue exchanges in the first five to ten hours of the game. But there are some expectations which go beyond what is advertised. Namely, when there's a sequel to a title, some people expect things such as a new standalone story, new characters, or at the very least, better development of existing characters, and of course, new areas to explore. And Horizon hits most of these. The pace at which they introduce them, though, is nothing short of bizarre. You see, Horizon Forbidden West opens in a new area, a place we haven't seen before, and it's really good. It introduces a couple of new monsters, a couple of new mechanics, and generally fits into what you would expect from a sequel. But right after this tutorial sequence, and after you defeat the big scary boss monster that bookends it, you return to the same area that you finished the first game within. They say that this is because you have to report back to the city leadership to figure out what's going on, but either way, it just feels off and weird. You then spend the next 10 to 15 hours in this area, the same area that you finished the first game within, completing various side quests, leveling up your equipment, and preparing for a trip west. And let me be very clear, I understand the narrative reason why they did this, okay? It's not lost on me, I just think it's a mistake. The game effectively starts right where the last game left off, so it only makes sense that you would ease your way into the new area. However, this isn't to say that where the last game left off was the proper choice of where to start this game, or the one that would lead to the most lean gameplay pacing because what results is one of the most dry openings to an allegedly epic adventure in recent memory, 
We've already explored this area. We are familiar with this terrain. We know these people. We've seen this city and spoken to its inhabitants, and it's just generally unexciting. Granted, I played the first game at launch, and several other times in the last few years. I know these areas pretty well, and this particular biome is pretty played out for me. Maybe for a lot of new players, it didn't feel like such a trudge, but for me, I am currently critiquing my experience with the game, and I have to be honest, this just didn't feel exciting. It felt lame and uninteresting. If you want to hear somebody's opinion who didn't play the first game and is going into this dry, I mean, I guess go find another critique. Uh, I This isn't for you, but I'm just telling you what it's like coming from somebody who played the first game, is very familiar with the first game, this was this was not it fam it was not it it's really frustrating when you're playing the game because the opening sequence is really cool you see the promised titular forbidden west and it's fascinating and beautiful and most importantly everything we see is new but just as you're getting acclimated you are ripped out of it and forced to return to the region from the end of the first game now while writing this script i did sit down for a solid 45 minutes and i tried to figure out why the developers would have opened the game in this way because after all in game development very rarely is anything done without very careful consideration for almost every choice there's usually a carefully considered purpose and there's a good reason behind almost every mundane design choice but I haven't been able to come up with anything beyond the simple explanation that they wanted to return the player to the starting area so that their adventure to the new west would feel more epic i can't come up with anything beyond this i i just i can't and if that is the reason why they did it this way i would have to say that i think it's a poor decision it's just not the right one whatever the reason for returning the player to the ending area from the first game it just ends up feeling like a really drawn out epilogue to a game that came out five years ago. It's also made worse because there aren't many new gameplay mechanics and systems usable in this opening section. The aforementioned rebreather that you will use to explore underwater sections later, the parachute, and the grappling hook all will be acquired in the coming hours. So for the first five to ten hours of you playing the game, it just feels like you're playing Horizon Zero Dawn. You see what I mean? It just makes this sequel feel like an expansion to the first game because for the first 10 hours not only is there very little by way of new mechanics introduced but you're in the same area so it, it just doesn't feel new or fresh or exciting at all like i said i can't come up with any other way of describing this other than saying it was simply a huge miscalculation it starts what could have been a really interesting great adventure in the most underwhelming and uninteresting way possible probably early on in the conceptualization phase of the game when it was in pre-production the designers figured that this opening sequence would be maybe an hour to 90 minutes long and it wasn't going to be that big of a deal but as development went on it ended up being five to ten hours some people i've seen have spent 15 hours in this opening section and that is ridiculous for a game that's only 30 to 35 hours long to spend a third of the game's time in an area that is so painfully unexciting and uninteresting as far as a sequel is concerned, it's it's just a mistake. But don't get me wrong, there are a few things that Horizon Forbidden West does really well in the opening hours. They introduce a new animation system, the cutscenes all look far, far better, and the facial animations have definitely seen a lot of improvement compared to the first game. Back then, most of the dialogue looked as though Mr. Potato Head was giving a TED Talk, but this time around, it feels much more natural with a few exceptions. Yet perfectly safe, Javelin Thrower. 
Why do they keep looking at the camera? Did you see that? Yeah, no, that's that's crazy. That's awkward as hell. There was also clearly a huge amount of effort put into the side content. Over the first 15 hours or so, I was blown away at the quality of every side quest I was sent on. They all had unique characters, storylines, they were memorable, and they fit into the world coherently. Whether you are helping out cult members who are trying to find their leader, who you find dead at the top of a cliffside, or you are simply gathering pieces to help a cook build a new grill to make some food, they are all fun and mark a huge improvement over the first game. Sure, many of them slip into simple fetch quests, but I'm actually much more forgiving when it comes to these than a lot of other game critics. If you're going to ask me to do something, at least have an interesting or unique reason for asking me to do it. If it's something I'm going to be doing repeatedly throughout the game, I can put up with it. There's only so many things you could ask me to do in a video game but at least make it interesting. In a little bit, we're gonna be talking about the main story and main campaign and that over-reliance on fetch quests. And the purpose behind that critique when we get to it is centered around the lack of true motivating or personality factors that go into that task. Whereas in these side quests, everything you're doing is tied to a character who has a unique personality and gives you a well-reasoned and rationed purpose behind that activity, while the main story ones just feel like gameplay time padding, nothing more. Put simply, if there's a good reason to go on a fetch quest, it doesn't really feel like a random goose chase. It feels like you're actually doing something meaningful and helping out a real person in this world. And that's all you can really ask from a side quest. Like for example, later in the game when you're retrieving the parts to build a rebreather, you meet this small group of guys who are all capable engineers and craftsmen and they want to restore the ruins of Las Vegas to its former glory to basically turn it into its own sort of tourist attraction. The problem is that they can't get down the shaft to the power controls that get everything set up and running because it's been flooded. So Aloy comes up with the idea to swim down as far as she possibly can to collect some parts, and then she's sent out to collect even more machine parts so that they can then build her a device that will let her swim indefinitely. And don't get it twisted, this is a great big fetch quest, but it doesn't feel that boring or lame because it's generally justified. Instead of just having Gaia tell you to randomly go collect this one thing because she needs it for stuff. If you met these guys and they said that they could sell you a rebreather, but first they need you to collect 20 items of this type and 10 of that type and five random plants, that would feel really stupid because it would be. There's no reason that those NPCs wouldn't take some other valuable item from Aloy and so it would just feel like filler because that's exactly what it would be. I'm sorry if this feels like I'm going on a diatribe that's unnecessary, but I feel like I really need to nip this in the bud before people comment on it because it is important. There are ways to do fetch quests that don't feel miserable and tedious and boring, and that is that they are justified in the game narratively or otherwise. Parts of Forbidden West do this really, really well, like those side quests or certain subsections of the main campaign. But the main campaign will have an over-reliance on these fetch quests that aren't justified in anywhere near as interesting a way other than the world's ending, I need this thing, go find it and bring it to me. Please and thank you. Now speaking of the main story quest lines, which we'll discuss a little bit more later, 
it's all pretty good, but I still insist that the pacing is total and complete ass. When I booted up this game, I was really pleased with the opening moments. We see brand new areas, we get to fight some new monsters, and it's really cool to see, and it works really well as an introduction. But then we're taken back to the opening area where we finished the first game, like I mentioned before, and it really does feel like we just took five leaps back after taking a nice healthy step forward. And then over the next 25 hours or so, the game slowly introduces new ideas and concepts to the point of aggravated frustration. I would understand the slow introduction of these ideas or narrative points if this was the first game in a franchise, but most players who are enjoying Forbidden West have already played the first game. And before somebody says that this is a next generation title, so there's likely a bunch of players who never tried the first game before jumping into this one on their fancy new PlayStation 5, realize that this game launched on the PlayStation 4 as well. Furthermore, the first game is very affordable and it's easy to acquire, and it's even included in PlayStation's less exciting version of Game Pass. There really was no barrier to entry when it came to being introduced to this series. So it seems odd that the developers built these opening hours as though everyone who played the game would have no idea what's going on, to the point where they feel the need to recap almost everything from the first game in excruciating detail in unskippable dialogue cutscenes. I would understand it if even more time had passed between the last game and this game. For example, it probably makes sense for every major Fallout title to spend a good amount of time recapping the world, the setting, and the themes at play. After all, with Fallout 3, it was a total reinvention of the franchise, and the odds were very high that most players would not have played the original games. And then with Fallout 4, seven years had passed and an entire console generation had completely transitioned. So a quick recap wouldn't hurt anybody. Or for more narrative games, The Last of Us Part 2 spent a very good amount of time recapping events from the first game with many different flashbacks and in-game discussions over what happened. And the latter example is probably the best one that I can point to for a game that does this pretty well. While The Last of Us Part II had plenty of pacing issues itself, they weren't based in the integration of the game's flashbacks or recap, but rather gameplay sections in the mid-game. When it came to informing players of what happened in Utah all those years ago, the careful placement of dialogue, flashbacks, and brooding glances resulted in an extremely fluid and natural storyline in those opening hours, even for new players. But to go back to Forbidden West, it really does just feel like the developers felt the need to act as though every player had no idea what happened in the first game, so they make you sit through countless scenes of the players in this play going through in painstaking detail every single plot point that was wrapped up in the last game, and it, it gave me an actual headache. Like, make it one cutscene at the opening of the game, and then you skip it if you want to skip it, Otherwise, you watch it, you get filled back in, and you move on with your day, and you keep playing the game. There's no need to have Aloy talking with everybody around her and having them recap the events of the first game every time they talk to her. It's, it's just annoying, and it's unnecessary. And again, it's another example of the game having a lot more bloat than it needed. Now, this next point of discussion I want to get to is one I can see a lot of people potentially disagreeing with. So I will come out at the forefront and just say that I agree this is very subjective. Don't get mad at me. Even so, it's a feeling I've seen echoed across the internet, and it seems like a lot of people have the same impression I have. What am I referring to? Well, 
Aloy as a character being very bland and boring. Now, what does this actually mean in practice? What does it mean for a character to be bland and boring? Well, it means that she's stiff. She doesn't exhibit many unique or personable character traits. She generally lacks charisma. When she's on screen, her purpose is usually to bounce off of the other characters she's across from and not the other way around. And all this is a big deal because she's the protagonist of this franchise. She's the character, the one character, that will be present during all story beats, every side quest, and every whisper of dialogue. If players don't connect with her or find her uninteresting or even in the worst case scenario simply don't like her, you could land in a tough spot. Because after all, why expect players to engage with a video game for dozens of hours on end if the character they have to use to do it isn't captivating or likable? Now you might think that Aloy is really interesting and compelling as a character. That's totally fine. You are free to have that opinion, just like I'm free to have the opinion, as do many other people on the internet, that she's very stiff and very bland. And I would actually argue that this was probably intentional to start off with in the first game and that it just hasn't changed since then. Now, I'm sure many of you are going to point to other games which have very stiff or dull characters, especially in the RPG space that are still really good. Of course, the player character in Skyrim isn't particularly charismatic. In fact, they don't really exhibit any personality traits at all because of the type of game that it is. It's a role-playing game, and the developers didn't want to limit the capacity for role-play by overriding or even just writing the character. By keeping the dialogue minimal, preventing the character from being overly emotive and allowing them to become whatever the player wants them to be, you can ensure that the role-playing experience you're presented with is much more more robust. This is exactly the reason why so many of us had big problems with the design of Fallout 4. The game wasn't bad, but as a role-playing game, it was really hard to get into the mindset of the character because dialogue options were all voiced by an actor. So, if you were role-playing in your mind as a soft-spoken mercenary who's seen things he'd rather forget, you may find yourself at odds with the portrayal of the player character by the actor. Because after all, it's next to impossible to deliver an emotive performance while also ensuring that you fit into every possible interpretation of the character. The problem, really, is that Horizon, as a franchise, really wanted to be an RPG during the development of the first game, but those systems were never fleshed out. And if you don't believe me, go and watch the devlogs from the actual development of the first game. There are multiple documentaries on YouTube you can watch and countless interviews you can see as well. It's clear, when this game was being conceptualized, they expected it to be an RPG in its final form, which is why they brought in so many people and veterans from other major RPG studios. For example, one of the lead writers for Fallout New Vegas was heavily involved in the creation and ideation process between the rewriting of Horizon Zero Dawn's storyline. But like I said, these systems were never fleshed out. Dialogue choices didn't have any impact, the narrative didn't branch beyond a couple of options in the early game, and the general impression most players got was that it was an action RPG and not a narrative one. So to be clear, I don't have a problem with a protagonist being bland and uninteresting on its face, if the game is going to be a narrative RPG, but when they pivoted away from it being a narrative RPG and more towards action RPG, 
we ran into a problem. At that point, they should have made a much greater effort to make Aloy an interesting character who has her own personality quirks beyond just being a standoffish, untrusting, risk-taking maniac. And I think part of the issue could possibly have come from Guerrilla Games's effortful aversion to romance and sexualization options of Aloy as a character, which I don't have an issue with. I think it's great to have a female protagonist who doesn't have to wear super busty clothing or, or tight-fitting clothing to be interesting. I think it's great that she's standing on her own without a reliance on those really cringy tropes of like 90s gaming. I think that's a good thing. But I do think they were so afraid of making her sexualized or too feminine in that stereotypical way that we've come to know female characters in video games where they're just like the target of the men's focus and that's about it that they just avoided having her engage in any sort of intimate contact with any of the immediate supporting cast not intimate meaning sexual but just intimate in terms of actually being close and vulnerable. There's a couple of characters who she shares really interesting conversations with, such as Tilda and Varl, who have very interesting reactions and interactions with Aloy, but they never really are fleshed out. And even when, spoiler, Varl dies, her reaction is still very stiff. She has a brief moment of sadness and desperation, and then she's back to her normal self. She talks to Zoe briefly at a shrine they erected for Varl after he died, but it doesn't go any further than this. She just looks off in the distance and then like accepts his death and moves on. And it's not really brought up again for the rest of the game. It's really weird. Like in Red Dead Redemption 2, Arthur and Dutch, they lost friends in Blackwater. We don't even get to see what happens in Blackwater, but the whole game, they are like traumatized over what happened there. They talk about it, but they also don't like talking about it, but you can tell it affects them and it really has an impact on their state of mind and how they pursue new ventures and, and new opportunities for thefts and robberies. It affected them and it scarred them. We didn't even get to see that, but we get to see Varl's death in Forbidden West and Aloy moves on faster than I moved on from the time that that guy at McDonald's screwed up my order. It's insane. Like I know some people are just going to be like, oh, well, her character is that she is so battle hardened that she just gets over it quickly and overcomes that that weakness as quickly as it comes on because she's so strong. And to that, I would say great tremendous but when you are developing a character that is so strong and powerful that she sheds all human emotion she's no longer a human character <laughs> she's something else she's like superwoman and that can be cool like superwoman cool whatever but that's not as interesting as vulnerability because interest in a story generally comes from conflict, from struggle, from misery, from heightened emotions. That's where it comes from. It doesn't come from somebody being totally unaffected because they're so powerful and capable. I think Aloy really could have benefited from more vulnerability and vulnerability that stretches much longer than just a scene at a time. I'm simply saying that there are very few opportunities for Aloy to stand out as a character and as a human being. 
to be able to present her own individualistic personality and to do anything other than stomp around dramatically trying to save the world because she's awesome, brave, stunning, beautiful, and very capable without any human emotions. It just feels like she isn't given any room to breathe. And it's really unfortunate because I think she could be a really interesting character if they just wrote her like she actually is human and and not bother with all this weirdness. I think the developers probably realized this problem after the first game, which is why they made such a concerted effort to introduce a secondary cast that hung out at the home base you unlock around 15 hours in. And this was effectively their way of forcing the player to interact with other human beings out of the main story cutscenes. And it certainly is a vast improvement over the first game, but I still think it generally falls flat. To use an analogy, you can set a wet paper bag across from one of the most interesting people in the world and force them to have a discussion and conversation. But those viewing that talk will still find the wet paper bag lacking in any sort of interesting contribution. But once again, this is subjective. I get it. I get it. You might think she's fantastically interesting by herself. I'm just telling you I don't. And many other people that I've seen all over the place agree that at the very least something's not working quite right. Unfortunately, she's just as uninteresting as she was five years ago, and that's a real problem if Sony hopes to keep this franchise going in the long term with her at the helm. It wouldn't take much, probably more companion missions with the main cast, conversations where she can be vulnerable and discuss her own fears and insecurities, and not by way of a clone who expresses those insecurities but with her actually doing it herself. Oh yeah, the clone. Quick sidebar. So this whole clone sister mother plotline was really bizarre to me. Basically, Beta shares the exact same biological blueprint as Aloy. She is also a copy of Elizabeth Sobek. They are the same, but they have been raised in very different environments. One was raised as an outcast and overcame her struggles to become the savior of humanity, and the other has been a prisoner and a slave forced to do the bidding of some evil characters who are running away from some potent force that they pissed off. The closest thing we get to Aloy being genuinely vulnerable, nervous, scared, and doubting her own capabilities is when this genetic copy of her expresses those concerns from her perspective. That's right, she doesn't even do it herself. They're like, oh, we need Aloy to have weakness. What should we do? Oh, we'll have that clone of her be scared and weak and vulnerable and human. Oh, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And then they have Aloy come in and be like, hey, hey, bitch, don't be so sad. I'm cool. You be cool like me. I got this. Shut up. Do what I do. Look at me. I'm great. And that, I kid you not, that's like the whole scene. I think this was because the writers were so obsessed with making her like a big bad hero character that they didn't want to give her a single moment where she like really gets scared and doubts herself for entire missions or for extended periods of time. There's an occasional conversation or cutscene when she's like, I don't know if I can do this. But 30 seconds later, she stomps off and it's like, I'm going to go save the world. And that's cool. It's just not human. <laughs> it's not interesting. It's not relatable. It just, it, it doesn't work. Like if Kratos, the god of war, can doubt his own abilities, powers, and strength when facing a mortal foe, I think Aloy can do it too and not be considered a weakling. Vulnerability and weakness is what makes characters human and relatable. One of the reasons why I don't find Aloy compelling is that she isn't 
human in any identical way. She just has crazy physical abilities, a focus device that gives her supernatural vision and analytical abilities, and she doesn't seem to ever get truly scared, nervous, or doubtful. You might get the occasional stumble in a cutscene, such as after the proving, but in the span of five minutes, she's back up sprinting towards the next quest objective to save the world because she's just that badass. All of this to say, I was really hoping that this time around, I would grow to really like and relate to Aloy, that I would see things that made me go, oh, she's she's human. I, I, I can appreciate that. But they never spend enough time doing it, and it just feels like they're almost scared to give her weaknesses, which is a big problem. Because again, she's helming this franchise for Sony. If they expect to be able to have her continue heading up this franchise for years and years to come, they need to do something about this because players are only going to grow more disenchanted and disengaged from her. There's a reason that players relate to Ellie a lot more than they relate to Aloy. I think there is a lot of potential here. After all, she has a unique backstory, and she is being asked to do things that no rational human being would say yes to. I guarantee if you asked me to go fight a gigantic robot T-Rex, I would probably say go F yourself. It's just really unfortunate that the writing staff seems more obsessed with making her look powerful, strong, and capable than writing an actual, realistic, and grounded character. Again, look at The Last of Us. Ellie is an incredibly grounded character. She's female. She's gay. She isn't sexualized at all, at least in the first game. And even so, she's incredibly vulnerable at times when it's natural and needed. There can be entire gameplay chapters where her insecurities drive the action, such as the winter sequence after Joel is injured. But Horizon has the occasional presentation of a concern or potential insecurity, and then it's all over just as quickly as it began, with the most extensive example only lasting a few minutes. But you know what, I will leave this here because most people hearing this topic will either totally agree or they will abjectly disagree and reject this whole premise of an issue so i'll leave it there i am interested in hearing your thoughts um in the comment section below but i i really see this as a major issue for the game moving forward and i think it's why so many people check out of the cutscenes and dialogue sequences in this game is because half of the sequence aloy and then whatever person or being she's talking to Half of that is very weak in terms of actual relatability and interest, and that just that doesn't work. Now to discuss combat ammo and balance. I'm not going to beat around the bush. I don't typically like playing games that have any sort of shooting mechanic on a controller. Call me a PC Master Race tryhard, but it's just the truth. For me to lie would be stupid. It doesn't matter if it's shooting a bow and arrow, or guns like in The Last of Us Part 2, or throwing nails while playing as a small clay figurine like in It Takes Two. I just don't like it. And as a result, I've never pushed myself to get better at playing these games on a controller, which creates a self-fulfilling loop where I'm not very good at it. And so I don't like doing it, blah, blah, blah. By the way, did you notice my costume change and camera angle shift? Yeah, pretty cool, huh? That being said, anticipating this resistance to the gameplay, I played through the first game on stream using a controller to prepare myself. When the first game came out, I often found myself frustrated with the combat. And I think this was for multiple reasons. Chiefly among them was that most major enemies felt like big arrow sponges, especially on higher difficulties. And because ammunition is directly tied to foraging and hunting itself, it rarely felt truly satisfying for me to take on a big beast because I knew 
that doing so would just result in me having less and less resources on hand for the next encounter, which would likely be even more difficult than the last. So going into this game, I was hoping for a few things. For one, I was really hoping that we would see a marked improvement in machine and beast variety. They would also need their own assortment of weak points and unique attacks that are threatening but still feel fair. Furthermore, the balancing itself would certainly need a lot of attention, because in the first game it often felt as though you needed to empty all of your ammunition reserves just to take on one large monster to acquire one of a handful of items needed to craft an upgrade, a satchel improvement, or some other addition. And this inevitably results in the player taking on one large combat encounter only to then spend half an hour to an hour collecting more resources to craft enough ammunition to take on the next encounter. And maybe I just don't like the grind, but this was always extremely frustrating for me and simply not fun. In my mind, these Horizon games are at their best when you're fighting massive machine monsters and defying all the odds, running around collecting twigs, shooting turkeys, and hunting for obscure crafting materials is probably the worst part of these games. And I'm sure some of you out there will disagree and are probably typing a comment at this very moment you're listening to this explaining as much. And I get it, you may really like running around this beautiful world that they've crafted and collecting these items while alone with your thoughts, or perhaps while watching a YouTube video such as this in the background. But I personally find this incredibly annoying because it comes off as nothing more than filler content. It just doesn't make sense to me why you would have a gameplay system such as the combat, which is fun and satisfying, and then you weigh it down with this albatross around its neck of random material collection, and as difficulty is raised, meaning you'll need more ammunition for each combat encounter, that albatross grows heavier and heavier, making it more and more difficult to engage with the system that's already difficult. But it's not difficult because it requires skill or practice. It's difficult because it requires hours of grinding to collect enough materials to craft enough ammunition to be able to take on a given beast. It's just not fun. It focuses its efforts on the wrong thing. It would be like in the Batman Arkham games if after every single combat encounter, especially against a boss or a mini boss, your suit was damaged. So then you would have to travel all the way to the Batcave, spend resources that you've collected through fighting crime and exploring the map to upgrade and repair your bat suit and armor, and then you go back out into the world to continue Batmaning. It's like, well, okay, so you added a system that pads out gameplay time, but the reason we play Batman games is to be Batman and to do Batman stuff, not to go through this tedious thing where we're trying to just basically tread water and stay afloat in a system that really wants to pull you down. And in the case of Horizon Forbidden West and Horizon Zero Dawn, the combat can be really, really fun. But it's almost like they don't want you to use it because they make ammo collection and weapon upgrades so tedious it's almost prohibitively unfun. As far as I'm concerned, part of any creator's job is to find the best parts of said creation and the worst parts. You then separate them and then actively work to shed the latter. If you know, for example, that your game is filled with tedious crafting material collection, foraging, and other such filler, it seems pretty clear to me that you should work actively to remove as much of that as humanly possible. The real problem I have with Horizon Forbidden West is that the developers doubled down on all of this. Instead of looking critically at the first game and figuring out what they needed to get rid of in the second, they just doubled down on absolutely everything in every way. There are new monsters, yes, many of them are bigger and badder than ever, yes, 
There are more side quests, sure. There is much more dialogue, which is all written much, much better. There are far more unique characters and encounters, more biomes, and countless puzzles and collectibles to be found. But there's also far more crafting materials to be found, tedious fetch quests, and extremely obscure crafting materials with limited drop rates from large, difficult beasts that are arrow sponges. The developers also bizarrely doubled down on fetch quests, so much so that if you need a certain item for crafting, or upgrades, or ammunition, you can go into the menus and tag that specific resource. And doing so will create what the game calls a job, which is added to the same list of activities as quests. And then you can select this job as your active quest, and it will mark it on the map within a small area that likely contains the resource that you need. Think of the same thing that happens when you pin an item or material in a game like Fallout 4 or Fallout 76. Wherever you go, if you find that particular object or an item that contains that crafting material, it will be marked on the menu so that you can find it more easily. But in this case, they actually put it as a side quest within your quest list so that you can go out and just grind through these. Not only is this dynamic content boring and uninteresting, it's also just lazy. You are literally creating a dynamic quest by having the player tag items they need themselves so that they can then go and retrieve it in a rough general area that they're likely to find it. And listen, the reason I'm discussing all of this when we're leading into the combat system is because this frames every single combat encounter that you will have in the game if you're playing it on any difficulty above the basic easiest, easiest level. Any normal or up difficulty level will frame every combat encounter with this problem. I would regularly ask myself if it was worth taking on a beast that I saw in the distance, considering that doing so would likely result in the depletion of my resources in a way that was not often worth it. And as I've said many times in these critiques, if you have a gameplay system that actively discourages players from engaging in another system, it should probably be cause for extreme concern. If your crafting system is so bloated and needlessly inflated, so much so that something as simple as crafting ammunition, which is a necessity for every single combat encounter in the game, is more of a headache than a quick obstacle, you should take a long, hard look at that system and trim it down aggressively. But I wanted to know if I was the only one experiencing this. So I started asking around to my friends, asking you guys on stream, and also over on the Discord to see if I was the only one experiencing this. And the core question that I was concerned with was whether or not players were changing the difficulty level as they went through the game to make it easier to find items that they needed to collect whenever they felt the need to do so. In other words, if you were playing through the game, you got all of your ammunition depleted and you knew that you were about to go into a really difficult combat encounter where you needed a ton of ammo, did players actively lower the difficulty setting in the menus, which you can do freely without punishment, to make it so that those rare items would drop every single time, to make it so the big bosses weren't arrow sponges to make it easier to do only to raise the difficulty level back up to normal or hard or whatever they were playing on once they had the ammunition. And you heard me right. The drop rates for the really rare items that certain creatures drop are directly tied to the difficulty settings. You play on the easiest setting, you'll receive every item that the beast is capable of dropping every time that you kill them. 
In contrast, if you're playing on a harder difficulty, you'll be dealing with much more restrictive drop rates on key materials, meaning that you'll be dealing with monsters that are far more spongy when it comes to damage, but also don't drop those legendary items or crucial crafting components anywhere near as frequently. And what I found was that the overwhelming majority of people I asked, both again on stream, discord, and in my personal life, they all said that they did encounter this they did play around with it, lowering the difficulty level, sometimes all the way down to the easiest level where items are guaranteed to drop every time you kill a monster. And then after they got that grinding out of the way to get ammunition back up and crafting stuff taken care of, they would just bring the difficulty level back up for the next combat encounter so that they could still have a challenge with it without feeling as though they needed to grind for ammunition. And that to me is a big problem. Now listen, I've gotten heat before because I've said for a long time that I don't like difficulty sliders in games. When the player is able to change the difficulty setting on the go with the only obstacle being a quick reload, players will inevitably change that setting to alter the experience for themselves. And that inherently is not a bad thing. As we'll be discussing in my Elden Ring critique, players are definitely capable of balancing the game for themselves to get the most out of it. The problem is that it encourages lazy development from the studio. After all, why bother balancing drop rates for important crafting materials when the player can just quickly swap over to the easiest difficulty setting for 20 minutes or so while they collect the items that they need before swapping back to the harder difficulty for the next combat encounter. And don't think I'm just bringing it up with Horizon. I even levied this criticism against The Witcher 3, one of my favorite games of all time. And the reason I criticized it was because I think it's pretty evident that the game is balanced against the Death March difficulty, the hardest difficulty in The Witcher 3. Playing at that level forces you to use all of the tools at your disposal, including fully upgraded potions, carefully selected food, precisely calibrated weapon and armor loadouts, and oils for all of your weapons. And when you play that game on the hardest difficulty setting, you will have an experience that you won't get any other way. And in my opinion, it's the best way to play the game full stop. And I think many other players would have had a much better time with The Witcher 3 from the outset if they had been forced into playing the game on that harder difficulty setting. And furthermore, on top of all of this, it means that developers can then spend a lot more time carefully and precisely balancing systems because everybody will be playing from the same starting point. No complicated multipliers to damage or item efficacy, just one simple stat table. I mean, do you think it's an accident that From Software doesn't bother with difficulty settings? No, it's because they can much more carefully cater and calibrate the experience for players if they know everybody's starting from the same point and based on their level and loadout, they'll be dealing with the same multipliers across the board. They don't have to worry about any of this complicated scaling stuff. I think Horizon Forbidden West would have been much better served if they didn't have difficulty scalers or anything like that. They just had the simple Horizon experience that they could calibrate carefully. The problem is if they did that, they would then have to go into the crafting system and carefully balance every little bit to make sure that players didn't feel as though they needed to grind just to get ammunition to take on the next boss encounter, which is unfun and uninteresting. And the fact that so many people that I talk to are actively lowering the difficulty level just to make that grind easier, I think shows that players don't find that grind fun because they're trying to find ways to avoid it and circumnavigate it. Simply put, I think there are a couple of huge problems with Horizon Forbidden West at a foundational level, which were present in the first game as well. It really taints the combat 
the exploration, and practically every other system. I really think they should have trimmed all of this down to one simple gameplay difficulty setting, perhaps with an option for new game plus at launch for those who want a more difficult challenge. And I think they should have carefully balanced the ammunition, the crafting systems, everything so that it doesn't require so much tedious foraging and collecting. Perhaps keep the system in place, but add in an option for one of your companions to bring you a full loadout of ammunition for a set cost of scrap. Kind of like the munitions dealer in Mafia 3, who you can summon for new weapons and ammunition refills at any time so long as you can pay the cost of his services. Something as simple as that would have greatly improved my experience with the game because when I encountered those herds that I previously avoided, I would have been able to refill my ammunition for a small cost and take them on simply for the fun of it. And with the ability to just purchase all of the ammunition on the go, I wouldn't have a need for those crafting materials gained from hunting the herd, except for weapon and armor upgrades, which would mean that I could then effectively become a hunter and poacher who regularly goes out and hunts beasts only to sell their materials for scrap that I can then trade for ammunition. Sure, there's now a middleman, that being the person I have to sell the items to in exchange for a currency, I'm going to then trade into ammo, but for a player like me, this would be greatly preferred. I wouldn't have to look into my weapon wheel, realize that I need canisters of blaze to craft fire arrows, pull open the map, find where the relevant machines are, fast travel using a fast travel bundle, kill a bunch of them to collect the necessary scrap, find the tanks of blaze, craft the arrows I need, and then fast travel back to where I was initially. Instead, I could just bypass all of that busy work and just hunt the damn machines freely, trade in all of those items I've randomly collected, and then purchase the ammunition when I need it. I'm sure some people will disagree with me on this, but I greatly prefer this system that I just described over the complicated system that's in place now. Sure, you're streamlining the experience, but at least give players the option, because I personally can't stand the tedious collecting and foraging, and I think the game would be much better if I could just focus on what the game does really, really well. But to touch on the actual combat, there's not a lot to say other than that it's more of the same from the first game. You're still going to be targeting weak points using elemental damage types to weaken machines that are uniquely vulnerable to those effects. The only difference is that this time you'll be able to climb, glide, and slide much more dynamically. We saw this in a bunch of the trailers leading up to the game's launch, really trying to showcase the increased amount of verticality in these encounters. But in my experience, most combat encounters won't feature this extreme level of verticality. For the most part, it's going to feel like it did in the first game. You'll be running through the woods or an open field, you'll see the machine that you need to take on, and then you'll start engaging with them. But outside of specific story beats, you probably are not going to spend much time carefully considering the angles from which you take on a given encampment or machines. You'll just kind of go in there and go crazy. There's also a few new weapons, but none of them are different enough to really feel like major additions. It's yet another reason why I feel like this game could be best summed up as Horizon Zero Dawn 1.5. It doesn't feel like it does enough differently to be totally separate from the first game. It just doubles down on major weaknesses of the original, which is part of the reason that I think it feels really underwhelming as a sequel. And beyond that, there's not much to say. You run around shooting machines and their weak points with your various weapons, and that's about it. I understand there's a lot of variety and subtlety when it comes to different weapons, patches you can put on those weapons, and upgrades that can be applied to said weapons, each with their own effect boosters, and there are certainly ways to maximize your damage output or insert elements 
environmental effects and damage that could be extremely powerful against certain machines, but effectively all of that was true of the first game as well. And I hate to say it, I'm just kind of burnt out on it. Thankfully, it looks like Guerrilla Games is taking a break from this franchise and is working on another game and a new IP set for release in the next few years, which I think is going to be really good because it seems as though they don't have a lot of fresh ideas for Aloy either in this franchise in addition to all of the gameplay issues. I could throw out a bunch of random ideas for improvements, but at the end of the day, there's just not that many things you can do to spruce up a combat system, which is almost entirely based around shooting arrows flung against giant robots. I don't know what I expected, it was just more than we got. It really does just feel like all of the problems from the first game are still here, but in many ways they're worse, and then all of the good stuff from the first game's combat is also still here, it's bigger and badder as well, but it just ends up feeling about the same because they didn't remove any of the crap, so it's weighing down all the good stuff. And it sucks because I feel like some of the boss fights, such as the opening one you do against the gigantic snake, or some of the other boss fights you do later in the game, could have been really, really special and could have felt way bigger and badder than they end up feeling. And it's just really unfortunate because I feel like they totally missed the ball. Like, they had an opportunity to really take the first game's overall experience up a notch, make it more cinematic, more crazy, but they just don't pull it off. And it's unfortunate because now we're going to be sitting on this franchise for a long time before we get another title. And it just feels as though they sort of blew their load with the first game when it came to creativity. And then in this sequel, they're like running out of ideas constantly. So they just do more of the first game, whether it's good or bad. But let's be real, the central and titular feature of this game is not the combat, not the protagonist, not even the big bosses or villains. It's the map and the world. The design of the map, the placement points of interest, and the pace at which these things are introduced to the player are all crucial to keeping the game engaging and fun. So many people have flooded my comment sections across my social media saying that this game is boring, bland, and even lazy across the board. And while that passionate response certainly represents a very vocal minority, it does reflect an opinion and sentiment that is certainly present among those who have played this game. I don't think it's fair to say that this game is lazy across the board, I think there are some lazy implementations of systems and some lack of thought on a lot of other systems, but in general there's a lot of content here. They definitely were doing a lot of work in the five years since the first game's launch. There's tons of content, tons of dialogue, and new areas of the map to explore, but the quality of the encounters and the way in which they're introduced to the player certainly has a lot to do with players feeling something so contrary to the verifiable quantity of content present. The biggest problem is the map and how points of interest are shown to the player, followed closely by quick travel and quick save systems that are integrated into the world's design. And if you haven't played either of the Horizon games, this might not make sense, but don't worry, we'll get into it. But real quick, before we get to that, I want to say thank you once again to the sponsor that made this video possible, NordVPN. Now I know, I know, you hear a lot of YouTubers promoting NordVPN, but there's a good reason for it. Not only are they a fantastic sponsor that helps keep the lights on, but they also have a tremendous product that I actively use in my day-to-day -day life. For those of you who know me, 
I don't promote things unless I actually use them and believe in the product. And in this case, I really do. I've tried other VPN services and none of them even approach NordVPN's intuitive tools and software and the sheer power of their offering. As some of you guys know, I have a big server in my studio where I store roughly 48 terabytes of gameplay footage from all of my run-throughs of pretty much every game I've ever played. And since members of my production team are all over the world, some of them in the UK, others in Wyoming, I have to send data globally and make sure that it's safe. And NordVPN even has advanced tools that allow you to do that, which is how I've been able to build in VPN service to my server so that all of my data is protected no matter where I am in the world or who I'm sending it to. When I tell you guys I believe in NordVPN, I'm not just making it up. I really do use it and I cannot recommend it enough. Like I said before, nordvpn.com slash Stevens with promo code Stevens at checkout to make sure that they know that I sent you. Again, nordvpn.com forward slash Stevens coupon code Stevens at checkout. Firstly, let's understand what these points of interest are before we understand how they're placed and communicated to the player. Simply, they are markers on the map that serve to show notable areas in the world. These could represent locations of different machine herds, shops and merchants, puzzle locations where you can locate artifacts, towns, campfires, etc. In some games, some points of interest go unmarked, leaving them hidden only for the most observant players to find. But in the Horizon games, Literally every little thing that the developers put into the game's map is marked on the map. And it would be one thing if they were only added to the map after being completed or cleared, but that's not the case either. If you sync up with the tall neck, it'll add all of this information to your map to view. Otherwise, you just have to explore the map with the small area of fog being cleared as you explore. And the resulting map, once you've cleared everything out, ends up looking like this. This is the map of Horizon Forbidden West. This is the whole thing. Every little area, you can see it all broken out every little spot and all of the interesting points of interest outlined clearly. Now, the first thing that probably stands out to you is that, holy crap, this is a lot of points of interest, like, good God. But you know what? The map is really big, so it makes sense that there would be a lot of stuff on it. Let's zoom in and see what we're actually dealing with. Okay, in cities, you can see we actually have each individual marker for uh, individual quests that might be outlined or your stash, hunter bows, plain song, the stitcher, the dyer, all of those merchants that you're going to be going to that you want to deal with. Out in the wilds, we've got campfires, lots of campfires, tall necks. Okay, we've got scrappers. We've got the green shine slab. We've got checkpoint delta. We've got another green shine slab. I always want to say green shire slab. Tide rippers. We've got uh, special areas that are kind of hidden away. All of this stuff sprinkled around. I don't know about you guys, but it immediately makes me think of Ubisoft. How the map is just littered with random little bitty things. And the fact that they show all of it on the map is weird to me. Like, players are going to explore the map and are going to discover a lot of this stuff themselves. They don't need you to hold their hand all the way to mark every single little point of interest, every single group of enemies and monsters. You just don't need to do that. For example, if we see here that, okay, shell walkers hang out here in addition to burrowers and tremor tusks. Okay, cool. We could have a bestiary like in The Witcher, and there are certain areas where tremor tusks hang out. You could say they hang out right at the base of mountains in snowy areas. Cool. 
players just need that. They don't need to be shown exactly where they hang out. You could just tell them generally where they hang out, what sort of ecology they prefer, and then players will seek that out, and that will be more satisfying when they actually discover that. And who knows, players will probably make a mental note of that area and return when they need more Tremor Tusk items, or when they just want to hunt them for fun, or whatever else it may be. Same with all of these other creatures and monsters that you find. There's no need to mark these things on the map. Whenever I see this much overkill when it comes to points of interest on a map, it makes me think that the developers don't have confidence in their players. They don't think that they're going to be capable of seeking these things out and finding them themselves. So they just do all of the work for the player, marking everything up instead of just trusting that the player will figure it out themselves. Like the map of Red Dead Redemption 2 is very, very large, has tons of stuff in it, but it's nowhere near filled with any of these points of interest because the developers were like, no, we're going to trust players to be able to hunt things that they need to hunt, to use information and the lore and the way we've built the world out. And we're going to give players the tools to navigate the world. We're not going to just hold their hand through it. And I much prefer that design philosophy because I think it works much, much better. And I think it results in a much more organic experience that's more satisfying and fun when you're talking about dozens and dozens of hours of your life spent exploring these maps. When I'm exploring this and I already know what I'm likely to find in these areas, I don't find it that fun. Granted, this is a fully cleared map, so when you're playing the game, this won't all be cleared at once. Most of this will be fogged over and you won't be able to see it. But as you clear tall neck sites and as you sort of meander your way through the forests and fields, this will eventually clear itself up and open up to the point where you'll be able to see all of this. The other thing you'll notice, which I touched on before, is just how many bonfires there are, or sorry, campfires. These little blue markers, every single one of them is a campfire. Now these are used for quick saving and quick loading into different areas. They are also points that you can fast travel to when you need to using the fast travel kits. What I notice when I look at this map is just how many there are. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like, look at this. Look how close these two campfires are. You literally just go up and around the ridge and then there's another one. Why do there need to be that many campfires? I, I honestly don't know. I was playing through the game and I was really trying to think of why the developers would need to scatter so many in here. I can't figure it out. Other than that, they wanted players to be able to fast travel to pretty much any point in the map without having any sort of inconvenience or travel time associated with it. So they just sprinkled bonfires, sorry, campfires every hundred yards or so and that's it and i would guess a lot of this is tied to the grind of material collection and foraging because a lot of players are going to need to go to all of these areas to collect different scrap that they need so the developers were like well it's already going to be tedious enough so let's just fill it in with more campfires to make it easier to get to the area you need to so for example if we need a snap maw and players want to go grind this out hunt through these because they need an item from a snap maw we can just place a campfire there, they'll fast travel there, they can kill it, and then travel out. Or, oh, players need to go and get this chunk. Well, we'll place a campfire close to that. Boom, you can travel there, jump right to it. Or, uh, oh, players might want to go into the greenhouse. Okay, well, we'll place a, a, a little workbench and a shelter and everything right there, so they can quickly get over there, in addition to a campfire here and here, so that they're easily accessible. All over the map, whenever there is one little thing players might need eventually to fast travel to or to grind for, they place a campfire right next to it 
which sort of betrays that the developers knew just how tedious the game was going to be. That they didn't want the travel to the place where you need to grind to be overly miserable or time consuming. They wanted to trim that down, which is just baffling because they're trimming down the wrong thing. Like trim down the grind, don't trim down the travel to the grind, <laughs> you know? like. You were so close, you were so close. But with all of that said, let's pivot into the story because we have to touch on the narrative at least a little bit in this video, even if it isn't that satisfying. I can say confidently that they put a lot of effort into the story this time around, just like they did in the first game. And I think expectations were also relatively high after the cliffhanger they left the last game on. There were all sorts of promises put forward by the development team leading up to the game's launch that this title would feature all new side quests and expanded secondary cast and more dialogue than the studio had ever put into a video game, and it certainly delivered on all of that. Now to break it down easily, there are three main acts to the game in addition to a prologue and an epilogue. During the prologue, we're going to be running through the events of the first game and catching up on the story while grinding through some basic tutorial sections. This makes up roughly 10 hours of gameplay. In Act 1, we'll get to our new base and start working with Gaia. This can take anywhere from 5 to 10 hours itself. In Act 2, we'll be following Gaia's instructions to collect Hephaestus, Aether, Poseidon, and Demeter to bring them back to her so she can get all of her subsystems working coherently. I feel like this was supposed to be the most time-consuming section of the game, but it actually isn't. It, for me, ended up taking between 10 and 15 hours. Even though I was under-leveled for most of the encounters I went into, I just didn't have that much trouble with them on the normal difficulty setting on hard. It was more time-consuming once again because I needed to go out and grind for ammunition. But once I was actually in the combat encounter, it wasn't that difficult. In Act 3, Gaia is captured along with Aloy 2.0, and so you track them down and try to save them while defeating the Zeniths. The Zenith, or Zenith, however you want to pronounce it, are a group of weird, supernaturally powerful, high-tech individuals that show up out of nowhere and seem to want to screw with Aloy and her group for no apparent reason. Though, naturally, whenever they look at Aloy, they get really weird and start talking to each other, whispering things to each other. Which is, you know, just par for the course when it comes to video game narratives. Like, whenever the big bad guy sees the protagonist, they're like, Oh, and you! You. You know, it's like the Harry Potter thing. It's just like, yeah, you're super special. Get over it. And then after we've rescued Aloy 2.0 and Gaia and conquered the Zenith once and for all, we continue upgrading our gear through the epilogue, completing side quests and playing more of the in-game board game that they created, which I actually really, really enjoy. Now, probably my biggest problem with the way that the story is structured is that it's incredibly meandering and it never feels as though there's one clear villain or objective. The Zenith are bad, obviously, but they seem to have complicated motivations. Motivations that Aloy appears wholly uninterested in understanding. Silence is also still here mucking about, and you still have a sense of distrust towards him, but he is still key to Aloy solving this mystery and fixing its problems. The objectives levied towards the player are also generally meandering. As I just mentioned, the first 10 hours of the game are spent performing mindless tedium, various fetch quests, and engaging in bland, verbose dialogue sequences that carry on far longer than you would expect them to. Once you pass that gate into the first main act of the story and gain access to the western portion of the map that this title is named after, you are sent on a series of fetch quests that are also tedious and not particularly exciting. 
I think part of my frustration with this mid-game portion is that there really isn't any mystery. You are sent to various interesting locations, my favorite of which is the old rundown version of Las Vegas, though it is admittedly far smaller and way less interesting than you would probably expect. You will then need to retrieve one of the subsystems from Gaia, which you will do by working with various NPCs in those areas. And after you've collected the subsystem, you will bring it all the way back to your center of operations and continue on to the next fetch quest to get the next subsystem. And I can't believe I have to say this, but designing a third of your game around different versions of fetch quests is just not that interesting. You could say that other games like The Witcher 3 do this as well, where the objective is to effectively fetch Siri, but I don't think that's fair, because the way the main quest is designed obfuscates that fact and leaves a lot of questions in the air. As you move from area to area in The Witcher 3, you don't know what you're going to find next, and it keeps things engaging and interesting as the plot thickens. But in Forbidden West, there is no mystery. You will go to the areas marked on your map, fight some enemies, maybe a couple of machines, make a couple of forgettable friends, and then move on to the next area to repeat the process. The biggest plot twist is that the Zenith occasionally show up and fight you and then like hurt you and your friends and then they leave and like that's it. <laughs> Paired with all of this and compounding the many problems we already are dealing with are the unending and exhausting dialogue trees that are just as long as they are unnecessary. I get it, the writers put a lot of work into the world building and conceptualization of the different tribes, factions, and the infighting between all of them. And that lore is really valuable and it's good to see that they've put the work in up front to build that out. But the way it's communicated to the player just feels very elementary. Every little detail is carefully explained through multiple sentences of dialogue that's usually built around conversations that are important for understanding where you are in the main story, the character motivations, and other such information that's really important to keeping the player engaged more generally. It's like one of those sandwiches you get from a deli that is way too much bread. It's Good that there's bread there. After all, a sandwich isn't really a sandwich without bread, but there's way too much surrounding the inner content, which is what you are actually interested in. The problem is that if you remove the bread, you won't be very full by eating just the inner contents, but if you leave all the bread there, you'll fill up way too quickly and won't be able to finish or fully appreciate the meats and dressings that define the sandwich. Yes, in case you were wondering, I was very hungry while writing this script. The point is, the needlessly bloated dialogue is the bread. The good portions of dialogue that's important for keeping the player engaged is the meat, the good stuff in the sandwich, and there's just way too much bread. But if you get rid of the bread, you're not going to be full. It's not going to work and you're going to feel like you're missing things. But if you eat everything with the bread, then you're just going to get full on the bread and you're not going to finish the sandwich leaving key information out of your mind. It just doesn't work well. Simply put, there's so much bloat around the important main dialogue that I think most players are going to just check out mentally and lose focus. It's okay to have the lore and extensive explanations of world events, but keep it relegated to its own dialogue branches in every case, so that it doesn't affect the player's capacity for understanding the main story. I don't have a survey or anything to back up this point, 
but I have seen countless comments from you guys on stream, TikTok, YouTube comment section, everywhere expressing this very point that many of you tuned out during longer dialogue sections and cutscenes because there was so much unnecessary dialogue. If you want to see what really good dialogue in a video game looks like, look at a game like God of War 2018, Red Dead Redemption 2, or The Last of Us series. All of them are written in a realistic style and they have very comprehensive and detailed worlds, but the key dialogue is written in such a lean way that it keeps people's attention so that they retain the important information. There's no other way I can put it than to just say that Horizon Forbidden West dialogue often feels like it's written by a high schooler crafting their very first short story. You know, in the words of a director I, I worked with when I was in a play called A Bright New Boise, novice writers pen too much, experienced writers pen enough. But listen, we can't beat around the bush with the narrative section and just not mention the ending of the game because a lot of really weird stuff happens seemingly out of nowhere. But that was probably because I was mentally tuning out so much of the dialogue that led up to the ending because it was so just bloated and inflated. I'm going to go through it. You see, they wrap up this game on one of the biggest cliffhangers that I can think of in recent memory within AAA game releases. And to explain this as briefly as I can, basically the Zenith it turns out, are the same group of humans that left Earth a thousand years ago when Calamity first struck. They have gained newfound abilities such as age-preventing medicine and intergalactic travel, and during that time, their newfound technological capabilities have even evolved greatly to the point where they appear as individual supermen and women. And for the majority of the game, it seems as though they want to just destroy life on Earth for some inexplicable reason. The main cast, of course, speculates as to their true motivations, but they never settle on anything concrete. Over the course of the story, we meet a fair number of new characters, including someone named Tilda Vandermeer, who is one of the Zenith that seems to want to help you for some reason. She's one of the original crew that's over a thousand years old herself. Now this next little part, I'm just going to read straight off of the Horizon Zero Dawn slash Horizon Forbidden West wiki page because they've already proofread it and they have confirmed all of this stuff. And I don't want you to think I'm making any of this up. So big props to the moderators and the, the contributors over on the Horizon Forbidden West wiki over there. They've done great, great work. All of this stuff I'm about to describe is found on that wiki. After departing Earth with their advanced longevity technology, Tilda and the other Zenith were able to halt their aging altogether, effectively rendering themselves immortal. They eventually reached the Sirius system and established a colony, with all the technology necessary to tend to their every need. Once again, Tilda found herself alone despite being surrounded by many who were more content with machines to tend to their needs and sitting in virtual reality. Her greatest company was her shame at leaving Elizabeth Sobek to die on Earth. Elizabeth Sobek, by the way, the lady that Aloy's clone and Aloy herself were based on, basically, they were in love. So Tilda and Elizabeth were, were lovers in the nighttime. It really like complicates the reaction Tilda has to Aloy later because she sees like a young version of her lover. It, it gets weird, but we'll keep going. After a few centuries, the colony was destroyed by the Zenith's own creation, a system called Nemesis, which was a failed attempt to develop digital immortality. Tilda was one of the dozen or so Zeniths to escape Sirius aboard the Odyssey ship. Knowing that Nemesis would continue to pursue them, Gerard came up with a plan to return to Earth and steal a backup copy of Gaia before leaving Earth to Nemesis's mercy while the Zenith find another planet to hide on. 
And to that end, they created a clone of Sobek, which they call Beta, and they wanted to use her gene print to access Zero Dawn facilities. En route back to Earth, Beta was placed in a learning module and educated by Apollo. And feeling that Beta needed to experience Earth culture, Tilda created a data channel that allowed Beta to exit the training module into a virtual replica of her mansion back on Earth. And after a few months, Tilda considered that the other Zeniths would punish Beta if the channel was discovered, so she spontaneously cut off all contact and would later pretend that the Data channel never even existed when Beta met the Zeniths in person. The Zeniths would then search several Zero Dawn facilities using Beta as the key for backup to no avail, until they received an anonymous data pulse pointing them in a particular direction. Tilda accompanied Gerard, Beta, and Eric Visser to the facility where they not only found a Gaia backup, but another Sobek clone, Aloy. Tilda immediately figures out that this was probably created by Gaia as a last resort to reboot the terraforming system. She attempted to suggest recruiting Aloy, but she was refused by the other members of the group, who ordered Visser to kill Aloy. While her allies assumed Aloy was deceased after she made a dramatic escape, Tilda suspected otherwise. She later found Aloy's destroyed focus and managed to repair it, gaining access to all of its data, at which point she also discovered the identity of the individual who had sent the pulse. Silence. Keeping this information to herself, Tilda got to work hacking the focuses of the Sons of Prometheus and learned that Silence was supplying Regala's rebels with machine overrides, and in exchange for helping overthrow Hikaru, she'd lead the full force of the Tanakh against the Zenith base in a suicidal attack. Tilda also learned about Aloy's life and concluded that she was, in fact, the superior version of Elizabeth Sobek compared to Beta. And seeing this as an opportunity for a do-over for leaving the love of her life behind a millennia earlier, Tilda plotted to betray the other Zenith to take both Aloy and Gaia aboard the Odyssey and leave Earth behind once and for all with her new but old lover. See what I mean? It gets... Like it, it gets, it gets weird. Like she's never met Aloy. She doesn't know Aloy, but because Aloy is technically a clone of somebody that she was in love with, she's just like, yeah, I'm just going to like take you and you're going to be mine. And we're going to like, it, it's weirdly rapey and I don't like it. It's, it's not great. Like I, it doesn't matter if she's female and, and Aloy's female like, it's still rapey either way. It's just not cool. Now, Tilda was with Gerard and Visser once again when they stormed Cauldron Gemini, where Aloy and her allies were attempting to merge Hephaestus. As Gerard incapacitated Aloy and Visser killed Varro and recaptured Beta, Tilda stealthily descended to join Aloy and took the moment to betray the Zenith, releasing a flash that knocked out Aloy while briefly blinding the Zenith, who were protected by their shields. I'm sorry I keep swapping on Zenith versus Zenith. My brain just thinks they're both valid, and so my brain says both interchangeably. I'm sorry, I'll try to do better. Tilda then took Aloy to the ruins of her old mansion and left her to recuperate in her vault. Once Aloy had awoken, Tilda offered her breakfast, and naturally, Aloy was pretty skeptical of her intentions after everything that the Zenith had done until she showed her her old focus, at which point Tilda explained to her her knowledge of Silence manipulating Regala's rebellion. She proposed that the two of them infiltrate the Zenith base during the Tanakh attack, that they might be able to kill the Zenith and recover Gaia and Beta once and for all. She also says that they could heal the biosphere and use Apollo to educate the tribal humans as Elizabeth had intended. And Aloy and her allies, 
who were all unaware of Nemesis's existence and had assumed the Zenith wanted to use Gaia to reshape the planet in their own image, a fact that Tilda kept to herself, they agree to go along with it. The exception being that Aloy refused to fully sacrifice the Tanakh, though Tilda didn't see another option until the Huntress demanded that she open the data channel to Beta. After Aloy told Beta to hold on, she whispered something to her but refused to disclose what she had whispered to Tilda. She then promised that after she laid Varl to rest, she'd put an end to Regala's rebellion, giving Silence no other option but to bring his anti-shield weapon to their side. Aloy then runs off, stops the Regala rebellion, and brings Silence to the table. Aloy then introduced the rogue Zenith to Silence, who was immediately suspicious of her true intentions. The rest of Aloy's companions also distrust her, but they don't see another option other than to work with her. So they prepare for the final attack on the far Zenith base, since she's the only one who knows how to gain access. So once you've all gathered up for the final assault during the final mission, Tilda guides everybody through the Far Zenith base and watches as Beta unleashes Hephaestus into the Far Zenith computer system, allowing it to rapidly manufacture machines that decimate the Spectre army. And after Silence uses his device to permanently disable the Zenith shields, including Tilda's own shield, Tilda went after Gerard to stop him from escaping while Aloy and Zoe killed Visor and the rest of her Zenith companions, who were all slaughtered and slain by Hephaestus's machines. At the top of the Far Zenith base, Tilda attacked Gerard, blasting him through a door and executing him with a plasma shot to the back in front of Aloy and Beta, whom Aloy had just rescued. Seeing a hologram of Nemesis in the middle of the room, Tilda quickly learned that Aloy and Beta had actually found out the truth about Nemesis. So Tilda described why Nemesis was turning on them and how it destroyed their civilization, admitting that Farzenith never wanted to destroy Earth, but only to steal Gaia and flee the planet to avoid Nemesis. Tilda further explained that Farzenith never sent the extinction signal, but that Nemesis did, and is now en route to destroy personally everything on Earth, and that it was compelled to do so since Hades had failed in the last game. Tilda then tells Aloy that Earth is doomed to perish at Nemesis' hands, and tells her that she must flee to a nearby planet aboard the Zenith spaceship, suggesting that they use Gaia to rebuild life there. However, devoted to the planet and her friends, Aloy flatly refused to abandon Earth. Angered, Tilda discarded Beta as an inferior copy of her lover and declared that she would force Aloy to come with her, refusing to make the same mistake she did a thousand years ago by leaving Elizabeth behind. Tilda then summons the Spectre Prime, which is the most advanced Far Zenith machine in their possession, and pilots it in an attempt to subdue and kidnap Aloy. You then have the final boss fight of the game, taking this big robot beast down, and upon the completion of the boss fight, Tilda is killed in the explosion. We're then left in a really weird spot where the game is basically over, but there is this impending force that wants to destroy all of the planet Earth, and uh, it was enough to cause serious concern for this hyper-advanced technological species and, and group of humans uh, that had escaped Earth a thousand years before. But you know what? Aloy's got a bow and arrow, so she's probably going to be able to figure it out in the next game. So it's just a huge cliffhanger where impending doom and death is omnipresent, and they don't know what they're going to do, and, and the game's just just over at that point. Now I have a couple of problems with this. For one, Tilda and her weird obsession with Elizabeth Sobek. It's weird. It's it's like it, it's all based on kidnapping and her bizarre feeling that she owns Beta and she owns Aloy. 
just plays weird and uh, it feels like the writers never really explore the idea that she just like she wants to basically kidnap and then keep Beta and Aloy as her possessions. It's just odd, but it's never really addressed and it seems like a missed opportunity. It's also frustrating because it feels as though they just relied on deus ex machina to fix all of the problems. Like, they couldn't take on the Zenith, so we'll have one of the Zenith turn on the Zenith, and then she'll provide special access to the base. She'll provide information that helps them override everything and defeat the big bad enemies. It just feels like they were unable to come up with a situation where Aloy could reasonably take down the Zenith by herself with her crew. And so they bring in this character to just do it for them and basically repair all of the plot holes and issues. And it just isn't that satisfying. It also seems like a huge missed opportunity to build this secondary cast for Aloy and then have them basically be subplot characters that never get their moment to shine in the ending of the game. They're just kind of there while Aloy and Tilda take on the big bad guys and handle everything. It just plays weird. Like Silence too. Silence just comes out of nowhere at the end of the game to provide this tool that makes all of the Zenith vulnerable. It's just odd. Like, it could be one thing if Tilda came along in the early game and said, listen, I want to help you guys. These people are crazy. We need this tool to override the shields that we have. If you do it, I'll become mortal, but so will they. So that's our ultimate goal is to get this thing crafted. And then over the course of the next 30 hours of gameplay, you're taking on very difficult beasts and machines that have crafting components that create this very rare, very special tool that you'll need to complete the main story. Boom, right there. We have a long-term goal. There's a reason to go and hunt machines, especially the big, tough, difficult ones. Done. Easy. But instead, they just rely on Silence doing all of it for them and fixing that problem for Aloy and the player. And it just feels as though it's, it's really underwhelming. Like, let this be a story about Aloy. Let the player figure these problems out. Don't rely on secondary characters or co-starring characters to do it for the player. That's just unsatisfying. I also think the whole introduction of Beta as a character is just bizarre. Like I said earlier, I think it's primarily just to give contrast to Aloy and show how badass Aloy is. But more than anything, it just makes me feel like Beta could have been a more compelling protagonist than Aloy. Because she has a lot more vulnerabilities, a lot more insecurities and weaknesses. And there's some place for her to go and grow too. Whereas Aloy just comes in and is like, you need to stop being such a whiny loser. Be like me. And the players are supposed to just like sit back and do the weird like slap poetry. Yes, queen. I don't find that satisfying. Like Beta would have been a much better character to lead the game instead of Aloy at this point. Because the writers don't want to give Aloy any weaknesses or vulnerability for any extended period of time. It's just... It's frustrating. But like I said, after all of that, we reach the end game or the epilogue technically. And this is when you're just supposed to go around doing all the bits and bops that you haven't done already. Now for this epilogue, we will gain access permanently to the Sunwing override key that players use to get to the final mission at the end of the game. So you will gain access to flying after you've completed the main story. Now, don't get me wrong. This is really cool. The Sunwing feels great to fly. It's super cool to be able to just summon it. It'll come pick you up. You can fly around, get to tough to navigate places. It makes that grind really, really 
at least more enjoyable because you can at least enjoy the views when you fly on the way to the location where you need to grind out some materials. It just feels good. What's bizarre to me is that you have to wait until the game's over <laughs> before you get it. Listen, I think there were reasons they did this. I think there's reasons that make sense as to why they force you to wait to the end of the game to get access to the Sunwing. For one, if you had access to the Sunwing from the beginning of the game or from halfway through the game, whatever it may have been, there's very little reason to run around on foot on the ground or on your mount to explore the map. You're just going to fly to and from every location. It's just the way it's going to work. So a lot of players would miss interesting locations. A lot of players wouldn't clear the map very carefully. They would just fly over it because it's more convenient. And as we know, if players can do something to make their life easier, they will do it. Secondly, the game is built around those aforementioned campfires that we were looking at for the fast travel system. And if you can just fly to locations, that's going to be more enjoyable for most players than just quickly fast traveling between campfires. So the whole campfire system is basically useless once you get that access to the Sunwing. There's no reason to use it. Or rather, there is reason to use it once the Sunwings become boring themselves, if and when that eventually happens. So I think it makes sense as to why they didn't introduce this to the player from the very, very beginning. But I think there were ways that they could have made it rare or difficult to access. Perhaps you get access to the Sunwing key about halfway through the game, and so you have that ability. But using the Sunwing override requires difficult to find items. I mean, hey, if we're going to force players to go around forage and mindlessly collecting things, why not just do it again with access to the, the Sunwing override key? So it's really difficult to act, get like get access to a Sunwing. Or maybe it's something like they require some sort of energy for the override that needs a cool down or just something to make it so you can't use it all the time, full stop. But even that would be unsatisfying because we'd get access to this really cool system, the Sunwing, and then we just would be actively prevented from using it, which defeats the purpose. I mean, as weird as it is, it's almost like the Sunwing is just... It's a cool feature, but it's one that doesn't work with the other systems at play in the game. I actually think the Sunwing isn't a good addition. Like, it's a cool addition. It's like, it's fun for half an hour when you first get access to it after the credits roll. But when you actually try to play through the general gameplay loop, it doesn't jive with it. It doesn't work with it. It feels out of place. And it's because the whole rest of the game is designed around you running around on foot or on your mount, and that's it. They didn't design this game for you to fly around locations. And so the level design, the way that things are set up, puzzles are set up, none of it takes the, the actual Sunwing into account. And it ends up feeling very, very weird. Maybe they have an idea for like their first big DLC whenever they get around to that, that will implement this Sunwing in a more interesting way. Hopefully they do that and it'll work better. But as of right now, this just doesn't do it for me. This is really, really weird and it just doesn't feel at home. I mean, I think there's ways that they could introduce this. For example, like if during a DLC they take you further out the coast, so maybe you are fighting it out on old oil rigs and like you have to fly between oil rigs and then you can override like robot whales and you can hang out with the whale as you like navigate the water. There'll be ways like that where you stretch things out so you don't need to pay as much attention to the minutia of exploring, but still it would take some pretty significant redesigns. But even if the Sunwing really changed the gameplay loop and made it super, super fun, I'll be real. I'm just kind of done with the game. Like the whole thing is so tedious 
It requires so much grinding. It's so bloated for the majority of its runtime that by the time I reached the end of the game, I was just ready to move on. I'm like, I'm just, I'm done. I'm good. I'm good. I was hoping that this game would take the first game and just rework it into something new and fresh, but instead they just gave me more of the same of the good and more of the same of the bad, and it ends up just being extremely bloated and kind of unfun. So let's wrap this up. Let's go to the back. So Forbidden West is just a really weird game to me. I don't really know what to make of it because I think on the one hand, it does a lot of stuff really well. And I think it's it's generally fun, at least in small portions and bites. But as the game goes on and as the game playtime continues to rack up, you realize that there's just not that much here that's totally new or fresh. Even some interesting ideas, such as the rebreather that they introduce aren't used or implemented very aggressively throughout most of the campaign. There's a few levels that implement it, which are pretty cool, such as the ones they showed off at E3 uh, a couple of years ago. But other than those few systems and integrations, they don't ever feel really comprehensively integrated or implemented. And it's just generally a weird game. I mean, again, the best way I can describe it is Horizon Zero Dawn 1.5. If, like, the DLC for Horizon Zero Dawn was Horizon Zero Dawn 1.1 or 1.25, this is 1.5. It doesn't even feel like a full generational leap. It doesn't feel like anything too crazy or anything that they couldn't have done on the base PS4. Because, of course, they ended up doing it on the base PS4 um, with Forbidden West available on that platform. You know, I said back in the day when Horizon Zero Dawn launched that I felt as though it was a solid B like a solid B, maybe even a B plus. There were a lot of really cool ideas, but I felt like it just didn't do anything so tremendous that it felt like an A plus. Like when you play God of War 2018, that feels like an A plus. So much of it is just tremendous in every way. Or same with Horizon, uh, or rather Red Dead Redemption 2 or The Witcher 3. All of those, they have something very unique and special about them that makes them stand out. Horizon Zero Dawn and then Horizon Forbidden West, just none of them have really nailed that. And while I was hoping this sequel would just take everything up a notch, it just hasn't. And as a result, we've ended up with a game that I feel is once again a solid B. More like a B- minus to me, possibly even a C+, depending on when you ask me. Because the grind is so tedious, there's so much here that just doesn't need to be here. And it generally just reeks of overconfidence and a lack of critical evaluation. I mentioned it earlier in the in the video where I, I said I felt as though they sort of liked the smell of their own farts and they were just pretending as though everything in Horizon Zero Dawn was really good. And so they just kept doing more of it even when it didn't really work. That's the vibe I get from most of Horizon Forbidden West. It's just like they took the stuff that worked from the first game, did more of it, made it bigger and badder and then they took all the crap from the first game and then made that bigger and badder way more of it and it's just unfortunate the pacing is all over the place the coolest navigational tool you get access to is given to you at the end of the game when you're already sick of it and even then it takes 10 hours plus to actually get to the area the game is named after and by that point, a lot of players will have already given up and just moved on. It sucks, but I just really don't think that this game is that exceptional. I don't think it's that fun, and I'm generally pretty disappointed by it. I was hoping for the next generation experience from Sony, but instead I just got more of the same. But all of that 
is just my opinion. Let me know what you think in the comment section below. And if you want to see me do a similar treatment to another game in an upcoming critique, comment what game you would like to see me tackle next. As always, if you like the video, make sure to hit the like, subscribe, and ring the bell to get notified of new uploads every Monday and Friday. And then also follow all of my social media, which I'll have linked in the link tree in the description box below the like button. So follow me, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Twitch, all that stuff. But that's it for me. Thanks for watching. I love you all more than you possibly know. I'll see you in the next one. Hugs and kisses. Bye-bye.